Welcome to SEI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SEI research from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Community Perspectives episode with Dr. Gino Panza. I'm one of your hosts, Marla. And I'm David. Today, we'll be discussing a paper titled The Clinical Relevance of Autonomic Dysfunction, Cerebral Hemodynamics, and Sleep Interactions in Individuals Living with SCI. Paper published in August in the Red Journal Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Paper was suggested to us, the podcast, by Asia's Autonomic Standards Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Gino Panza. Gino is currently an assistant professor in the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, Department of Healthcare Sciences, Program of Occupational Therapy uh, at Wayne State University, and a health science specialist at the John D. Dingle VAMC in Detroit, Michigan. Gino's bachelor and master's degrees are in exercise physiology, and his PhD is in rehabilitation science, where he focused on cardiorespiratory responses to overground locomotor training in individuals with motor incomplete spinal cord injury. His postdoc was completed in the Department of Physiology in the School of Medicine at Wayne State University, where he focused on the beneficial impact of mild intermittent hypoxia on blood pressure and upper airway function in individuals with sleep apnea and hypertension, which draws us to the topic of the paper today. Dr. Ponza is now funded to investigate the potential beneficial impact of mild intermittent hypoxia on autonomic dysreflexia and orthostatic hypotension in individuals with motor incomplete spinal cord injury. Thank you, Gino, for Gino for being here with us. Uh, to kick us off so that our viewers can learn a little bit about you, can you just, nothing related to the paper, tell us about Dr. Downriver? Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, so there's a, a river that runs through Detroit out to um, some of the waterways in Lake Erie. And in one area where a lot of the plants were, the river caught on fire. So water caught mm. on fire. Mm. Um, so it's downriver is usually used to insult somebody. And um, a friend of mine in my master's degree was haggling me, giving me a hard time and came up with the doctor downriver because I was being quite stubborn at one point. And so hey. he called me that and it has stuck since 2013. So it's been 10 years now. And I just kind of lean into it at this point. So we um, did an episode, a few episodes back, talked a little bit about the autonomic nervous system and kind of what exactly it is, but could you kind of just go over, you know, what what is the autonomic nervous system? How does it impact my cardiovascular system? And why, you know, do I care about the autonomic nervous system in terms of if I'm trying to exercise or if I'm just trying to do my regular activities, you know, getting in and out of my chair, getting to the bathroom, you know, getting to work in and out of the car. Why do I care about the autonomic nervous system? That's a great question. The, the autonomic nervous system is, is the controller, if you will, of most of the autonomous body actions that you don't think of, right? You don't think of breathing all the time, you, even though you do, you can. You don't think about you know, your heart contracting to pump blood. So it does all of those things. And at, at the level that where you're worried about for activities of daily living, like getting in and out of your car, is it helps deliver blood to your, your muscles so that they can generate energy so that they can contract and generate force so you can, you know, walk or open a door or 
pick up a pan or whatever you're you're doing for that specific task. So we we really care about it in in many aspects because you know the autonomic or the automatic aspects of life that we don't think about, right? We don't have voluntary control over those. So if it's impacted, then it's it's something that you cannot change, right? So research and medicine is is really focused on trying to find things to help the autonomic nervous system because it's not necessarily something that you can do directly yourself. I'd say that's the 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 quickest way that I can explain it. And then part of your paper talks about this concept of sleep disordered breathing. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is, both like in the population of people living with spinal cord injury and, you know, just in the general population without injury? Yeah. So there, there's a lot of different ways that you can talk about sleep disordered breathing. So when you see sleep disordered breathing, it, it it's a, usually an aspect of sleep health, or you will sometimes see the term sleep hygiene. So sleep disordered breathing usually targets us in just one particular area of sleep, and that's, that's how you breathe while you're asleep. So there's a, there's a whole lot of other areas that impact how you sleep, but sleep disordered breathing is very a, a very specific area within sleep um, regarding to how you breathe and how it impacts your overall sleep health, if, if you will. So Gino, can I have disordered sleep without disordered sleep breathing? You can. That would be potentially stuff like in, insomnia, narcolepsy, different leg, restless leg syndrome and, and stuff like that, that keeps you awake and keeps you from having a high quality restorative sleep. That's uh, that makes sense. So how do we know then if I'm sleeping that it's because my breathing and not something else? Well, that's when you would have to go to a, a clinic or a research lab like mine and get hooked up to a whole lot of sensors so we can tell you if it's your legs moving, if it has to do with what type of sleep you're in, or if it has to do with your breathing, a whole host of other tests just to kind of decide what is the factor that is impacting your sleep. I'm picturing a lot of electrodes. Depending on your setup, you can have you can have many, many electrodes. Thankfully, uh, my current setup doesn't have as, as many as my former one, but I think we use eight on your head, one on each eye, one on your forehead. We have a, a one electrode that's three surface ones that goes on your chin. And then we put a bunch of stickers on your chest. So um, there are a lot of wires. Um, so and any bioengineers out there that can find a way to make it more wireless or closer, you'd have a, a very good career. <laughs> you'd help a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. G Gino's definitely going to buy your device. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> or, or, or he'll use funds from a grant that he so. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I come in for this sleep study. You got all the wires. Am I sleeping in the lab? How does that work? Um, you can do various different types of sleep studies. So there's different levels. A, a level one is your full polysomnogram, where you come in and we put a, a thing on your finger that looks at how much oxygen is in your blood. We put the stickers on your chest to look at your heart. We put all the electrodes all over your head to look at your eye movements, your brain waves, and all of that. And and some labs will use a video camera. So you'll come in to the lab, in the, usually in a hospital, and you're all hooked up. 
bunch of computers on and there's either somebody watching or there's a video camera. So we do an attended one. So uh, me or my staff is in the room. Other ones will have uh, somebody who is present, but they also use a video camera to record your sleep position and, and anything else that happens. But that is in the lab. You can do other types in the lab, but uh, level two or more so level three and four sleep studies, you lose the number of signals. So we can send you home with this little box that you know clips to your shirt and it stays on your chest. You put two bands around your, one band around your chest, one around your abdomen. And you can put a little sensor on your nose that detects air going in and out and we can put a thing on your finger and you sleep with that and it's stored in the device so then you can sleep at home so there there are you know you can do it in lab or at home but you you definitely get way more information if you do it in, in a lab or in a in a clinic so if i'm you know concerned that I may have some sleep disorder breathing, what are some symptoms or signs that maybe I should keep an eye out for? Or, you know, somebody that sleeps in the same house as me maybe can keep an eye out for that I should maybe talk to my spinal cord injury doc about um, to help, you know, decide if I need one of those fancy sleep studies where I'm all hooked up. So, you know, if, if you get on the all-powerful Google machine and you start looking these up and usually the first thing they're going to say is fatigue, but um, fatigue and tiredness. And obviously that's, that's typically not a differentiator for those that are living with a, a spinal cord injury. The other one is if, you know, if you're constantly falling asleep during the day, losing focus, you know, we had somebody in our lab, he joined our study to figure out his sleep because he kept falling asleep at work and he was afraid of getting fired because he couldn't work properly. That, that's one. And then the other one is if you fall asleep, if you snore a lot or you wake up gasping for air, sometimes you may not realize it, but your partner will notice. Like, oh, you know, you keep, you know, maybe it sounds like you're gagging or something while you're asleep and you wake up and you're startled, you fall back asleep. That's, that could be um, sleep disorder breathing. So, um, and individuals don't always realize it themselves. It's usually reported by the partner. Yeah, so Gino, this is great to be hearing about sleep. It's probably a topic that's under-discussed in, well, we know it's under-reported in the scientific literature, under-discussed probably by clinicians in spinal cord injury, but I imagine people living with spinal cord injuries probably all are nodding their heads right now and saying, yeah, yeah. Um, so if we can if we can pivot, because there's three broad topics that are discussed in the paper, which is why we're, we're talking to you. And um, the other ones would have to do with autonomic dysfunction in the realm of cardiovascular um, blood flow going to the body and then specifically to the brain. So you, you talk about how fatigue probably in spinal cord injury isn't like the best indicator of, of sleep disordered breathing, but we, we have this, this concept of cognitive function due to cerebral perfusion. So can you like switch to that? Maybe in like, I heard this term brain fog during COVID and, you know, maybe it's due to like a virus or maybe, maybe it's something else if I have a spinal cord injury. Um, I don't know about the virus, but, um, you know, the, the cognitive there's in people without a spinal cord injury, if you've had sleep apnea long enough, it can lead to fatigue and sleepiness and some level of cognitive decline. So we can do a, a, a lot of easy tests that, that show um, usually slower response times, right? And problem is with sleep, 
and spinal cord injury is, at least from a scientific side, is we don't know the difference what's impacting the brain, right? But the the easy way that I, I think about it from my exercise background is, you know, if I don't sleep well, I'm so incredibly unmotivated to work out or do anything. It's it's really easy to be like, oh, you know, I'm tired today, tomorrow, I'll do it, right? Well, that becomes, you know, this perpetual loop where it doesn't go away if you have sleep disorder for you. And that seems to be the case whether you have an injury or, or not. So, um, you know, that's whether that's brain fog or, or, or not, I, I'm not really sure. One of the thoughts is that with the sleep disordered breathing, um, you, you may have a change in oxygen delivery to the brain. So if the oxygen to the brain changes, there's a, a whole lot of factors that could potentially happen. But one, it could lead to a dysfunction on how the, the cells in the brain function for cog cognition. Um, so hopefully in this case of research that it's reversible. And it does seem to at least be partially reversible if you treat sleep disordered breathing, a lot of the cognitive function comes back. So whether that's you know the, the interplay with the blood flow to the brain or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But um, we know that if we treat the sleep disordered breathing, that um, your cognition can potentially improve. Oh, that's great because I saw a company, I think they're called Onward Medical, and they did this study and they put this spinal cord stimulator in someone's spine and that person had orthostatic hypotension. I saw an interview with this person and they were like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that I was in this state of brain fog until you turned that stimulator on. My blood pressure was back in control. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's the point of this paper. And the, the other one is, is what we're really trying to highlight is if somebody in that case of that example with the stimulator, they clearly had low blood pressure and that's impacting blood flow to the brain. It could be potentially worsened if you have sleep disordered breathing. So if you have sleep disordered breathing, your airway will close while you sleep and that leads to a drop in oxygen in your blood and a buildup of something called carbon dioxide. And that has an impact on blood flow to the brain as well. So you constantly cycle through that every, every hour. So we had somebody in our our study last year we had 88 events per hour and he slept for six hours. So 88 times an hour, his, his blood oxygen dropped below right, right around 90%. So essentially he was, this individual had lower oxygen in his blood for the entire night at 88 events per hour. This person also has orthostatic hypertension. So when you look at them combined, is is it's probably at least an additive effect, you know. So if you have orthostatic hypotension and sleep disordered breathing, it may worsen the brain fog, if you will. And that's what we're trying to, um, you know, begin researching and intervening on. So, what are some ways that I can? You know, a person living with a spinal cord injury can maybe know that they're having orthostatic hypotension. You know, does it get better the further I get out from my injury? Um, what should I, you know, if I'm experiencing certain symptoms, what should I make sure I tell my doctor about? So, see, that's a hard one for me as a as a non clinician, as we were talking about before, is. Um... 
as research goes, it's usually reported up to 60% of individuals are asymptomatic. So you may not realize it right away, right? So you, you have to be an active participant in your treatment, right? Um, that's something we're writing in a paper right now is, is the more information you have, it allows you to be more active in your treatment. And you may just have to ask to be tested. I mean, I suppose you can get a blood pressure cuff your self i'm not advising this this is not medical advice but you know it, it it is a pretty easy it is a pretty easy test to do you know in my lab for example we don't do a tilt table i just do a sit-up test and i have a stretcher available so they sit on a stretcher and i sit them up from supine to almost straight up in about two seconds and we monitor blood pressure during that time so be, because there's such a high prevalence of um, individuals being asymptomatic it, it's probably I, I, if I had a spinal cord injury or if I, I actually have a really good friend that has one, but he's been treated long since and he's aware of his symptoms, I would be a very big advocate of stating that you have to advocate for these tests. You're aware of them. Your physician may not always know of them and you may not have symptoms. That does not mean that there's, there's not something happening there. And I don't know many pathologies out there where early intervention is a bad thing. So, you know, the earlier you can test and, and see if this is something that you're experiencing, the better. And as you know, we, we haven't talked about it uh, since we've been recording, but orthostatic hypotension seems to potentially worsen over time. So it would be good to be doing it. You may not have it right, right now, but if your injury is high enough or severe enough, you're likely going to want to be tested at, relative intervals you know what that interval is I, I can't say but you know over time it would be important to check mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you brought up you know like i could come into your lab and get hooked up with all the uh what was it level two or level three or whatever but if i'm going to go into the clinic we use the term sleep study um just for clarification here study it's actually a clinical exam that's done right even though the term study sometimes is like experimental but these are proven like like diagnostic tests right so does my insurance cover that like maybe maybe my local SCI doc can hook me up oh see that's that's where i have to defer i yeah marla might know yeah when it comes to anything to do with insurance i i back away you know my students often ask me why aren't you a clinician like no t is like i don't want to deal with insurance <laughs> you know i that that's fair, one thing fair. that i'm not i'm not sure about one thing you could talk about gino is maybe like if somebody's interested in participating in a study like that maybe where they can find information about like participating in a study besides talking to their doc yeah so one thing i've been I've been, I guess this is a good platform for it. I've been trying to get started is I would like to create over time a, a database of individuals with the SCI that are willing to put their name in, in a database where it's just name, number, whatever it is, willing to travel for a study, be involved. Because what we do is once I stage and score your, your sleep study, we can print it off. And, and usually what we put is for research purposes only. And then I sign off on it. Um, since I'm here at the VA, I work with uh, some of the sleep clinicians here. Um, and one of the individuals that signs off on them is on my, my study. So when he sees that report for me, he, know, he trained me. So he knows that he can use that. So they don't even necessarily need to go through the full testing. They can take the results from my, my study. 
but you can always take like we give those to any individual that asks for it we print it out i write on it for research purposes only but it has a full it has all the information and they can take it to their physician now what the physician does from from there i'm i'm not sure but um it's absolutely something that can be done yeah and if we go to clinicaltrials.gov you can dig through that there's a new interface for it it's a little bit more more usable but as a shout out, sci-trials.org and sci-trialsfinder.net. These are two grassroots uh, amalgamator websites. If you have a spinal cord injury, you can go in, you can look at clinical trials in your area for your level of injury, et cetera, et cetera. So look up your local researcher, right? Um, and also try and self-advocate as we do. So, sorry, Gina. Um, I was going to say is we just had somebody in our study that found us through clinical trials. It was the first time in seven years somebody found us through that website specifically so with all of our all of our research efforts right i work with rehabilitation institute of michigan here they send out flyers on our behalf i have all the va stuff we go to all the local things never found this individual and then he emailed me he was like hey i saw your clinical trials i want to be involved so oh, thank thank goodness awesome brought him in and and ran through the level one sleep study and, and everything else. So it's, uh, it's a good, good resource. Yeah, that's awesome. And gr great point you make there, Gino, too. Uh, if your local scientists aren't in contact with your local spinal cord injury support group, they should be. But also go to these events, go to these organizations that serve these purposes, and most likely they're distributing flyers and whatnot. So You touched on this point a little bit, but I just wanted to sort of clarify, you know, when we were talking about the cerebral blood flow. And then we were talking about the orthostatic hypotension. Like if somebody's getting their blood pressure taken on their arm and their blood pressure is low on their arm, does that tell me for sure that the cerebral blood flow or the blood flow that's going to my brain also is low? Or do I know, like, do those things correlate completely or um, are there differences between those two things? Um, I would say the available evidence says that there are differences. So I'm sure at least the the two of you and the scientists listening are, are pretty familiar with Jill Weck's work, and that's what she looks at. She looks at chronic hypotension. So if your blood pressure, when they take it on your arm, is is typically always low, that's one thing that they've investigated to look at alterations in blood flow to the brain and then that how that impacts cognitive function. Um, some of the other labs, they'll do different tests, whether it's a cognitive test or they'll elicit autonomic dysreflexia and look at how the body controls blood, blood flow to the brain compared to blood flow in your arm. And there are, there are some discrepancies. Generally speaking, they should be related because it's all from your autonomic nervous system, right? And if your blood flow in your, in your arms are really low, the, the goal is to maintain blood flow to the brain. So it shouldn't change, but it, it clearly does and is impacted by the, by the injury somehow. Yeah. Lots of things that ought to be related are no longer after a spinal cord injuries. Yeah. <laughs> so here we are. Right. So, so when it comes to all this, this is great. We've, we've identified these different problems and maybe some of these problems have been kind of underserved, um, by science and medicine. So we know what the problems are, but can we talk a little bit about maybe how to address them? Like, is there anything I can do about my disordered sleep? Um, yeah, the, the, the gold standard right now is called positive airway pressure and it's typically continuous positive airway pressure. So it's called CPAP. 
And that's the machine that sits on your bed. You put it, whether it's a, just around your nose or mouth and nose. Now they have pillows, these little things that just go in your nose, your nostrils, and they, they push air in. And what that does is it pushes air in and it keeps your airway open. So for a host of potential different reasons, the muscles of the upper airway will close or the tongue will fall backwards into the airway and that's what stops you from breathing at night. So with the positive airway pressure, that keeps the airway open. And that's the, the gold standard treatment. The problem is most people don't like it. And then when you, when you, and that's just across the board, right? But then in individuals with spinal cord injury, it's also been suggested that one of the issues with the CPAP, even though, mind you, it's the quote unquote gold standard, is individuals that have tetraplegia struggle with adjusting, either putting on the mask or adjusting it in the middle of the night. So if you do move or you have an arousal, and let's say you shake your head and it starts to fall off your face. Now you have this thing blowing air pressure and it's over top of your eye instead of your nose. Well, that's clearly not going to help you sleep well. And you already have mm -mm. sleep problems. No, I'm not sleeping anymore. Yeah. Right. And so that, that's a, that's a problem. And then, you know, add it to traveling. You have to travel with the machine and then you still have it, you know, moving around on your face at night. It's difficult to adjust. Um, depending on the type of sleep apnea, um, there are like mouth guards, right? So some individuals without an injury, they can wear a mouth guard and it pulls the jaw forward, helps keep the tongue forward and stops it from falling into the airway. I actually don't know if anybody's looked at that for individuals with a spinal cord injury. But if the issue is for that, for this individual, that it is the tongue falling into the airway, then the mouthpiece may be an easier option for, for treatment. There are surgical um, treatments where people are implanting electrodes to the upper airway. So when your airway starts to close, it stimulates the upper airway to open. Hopefully when my trial is, is done, I could potentially tell you that there's a breathing therapy that we do that could potentially change the way that the upper airway functions. Um, so there, there are new things on the horizon, but you know, the stuff I do in my lab would take quite a bit of time, but right now it's, it's really a CPAP and then a whole host of pharmaceuticals that don't seem to be particularly effective. They may help with certain aspects, but it, like anything else, it does, it's not a, a total fix. So, but right now, um, CPAP is still the gold standard, whether you have a spinal cord injury or not. And, and even though I said some people really dislike it, for those that have sleep apnea and spinal cord injury, and you can tolerate the machine, typically those individuals are adherent and they do really enjoy it and they like it and they stick with it because they do have fairly quick um, results. You know, the participant we just had in our lab was like, you know, hurry up and give me that sleep study information. I need to go get my CPAP from my physician. Like right now, we're like, oh, you know, we got 25 days of data. Like I'm, I'm trying, you know, so we'll get to it. But for those with severe sleep apnea and can tolerate the machine, they tend to enjoy it much more because the alleviation of symptoms is so dramatic, right? And that's that's specific to those that have had a, that have a spinal cord injury. So still promising. Oh, it's great to hear. So, uh, last question here before, well, penultimate, before we get to our, our outro questions, but you list a lot of resources. It seems like this device, the CPAP is kind of like, you know, the best, if I can get a hold of it, there's different drugs. Maybe there's some like breathing rehabilitation. Is there one 
consolidated resource list, like, uh, I don't know, some kind of user guide or something that's been made to communicate all this? No, but we should make one. Hey. Add it, add it to the to-do list. I'm in. I've, I've been wanting to do something like that. I have not come across it, but I'm not always looking for, you know, uh, one or two page PDF for the individual with the injury. We've tried to get stuff like that going with, with various other, other individuals. Um, so I'm not, I'm not aware of one, but there, there definitely needs to be, needs to be one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just as an example, um, C pain, S E E pain, all one word guide was recently published by some pain researchers in spinal cord injury. It's kind of an example of what one of these might look like. So, Hey, would love to see that come out, Gino. And if it does, I will be handing it to everyone I know with the spinal cord injury. Uh, Marla, you want to, you want to hand us over to our outro? Sure thing. So Gino, somebody with a spinal cord injury or their loved one or caregiver comes across their pa your paper and they read it, you know, what do you hope that they're able to take from your paper? What's, you know, one or two things that you really hope that they can kind of remember and, you know, can affect them in their daily life? If, if a patient or a caregiver is reading my paper, I'll be ecstatic because um, I, I can say after writing it, they're not always the, the easiest, right? Because what we're trying to do in these papers is we're trying to walk a fine line of giving clinical suggestions and the rigors of, of science. But hopefully what I, uh, hopefully what I'm hopeful that people would take away is, is honestly, is that you have to be a huge advocate in your, your health. The, and, you know, if you read this paper, you're probably not going to follow all of this without a science background, but hopefully what you take away is, okay, there are a couple major, major sequela or major outcomes that happen after a spinal cord injury that I need to have deliberately checked, right? And that can dra drastically change, hopefully drastically improve your quality of life or whatever it may be. So for example, maybe some individuals don't have as much autonomic dysfunction, but they still have sleep disruption. And if you treat that cognitive function improves, so that brain fog goes away, right? So that doesn't match the, you know, the entire figure that we have there, but it's still part of it. So hopefully it, it helps be the impetus for individuals to be uh, more active in the decision-making for their, their treatment. Now I, as a, you're a clinician, not, not me. I, I don't know if I just made you, gave you five more migraines or not, but um, you know, it, that's, that's what I, that I take away is, is clearly there are a lot of things that clinicians may or may not have access to that can drastically impact somebody's, you know, health related quality of life that they could advocate for. We have some awesome, brilliant listeners. So anytime they can advocate for themselves or learn more from reading one of these papers like you have here, it's always going to help us in the, you know, treating community and the research community, knowing what people need is important. So really appreciate you bringing that up. It's such a good point for any of these papers that we bring on this podcast. So thank you. Um, and thank you again so much for being here. This is a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be, uh, you know, out in front and doing the other side of research, you know, the disseminating information. So I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to, to speak on this. Thanks, Dr. Downriver. <laughs>
No problem. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on recommendation from Asia's Autonomic Standards Committee. The podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Gro, your producer hosts, David McMillan, that's me, and Marla Petriello, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Conception, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.